0: prayer. Um, Lord, thank you that we get to be here, and thank you, Lord, that you're the center of all of this. So, Jesus, our prayer is to know you more intimately, so we love you more deeply and serve you more faithfully. So, Holy Spirit, please take this and apply it to our hearts and our minds and our wills and our emotions and even our bodies. Amen. So what we were just talking about um, was stillness, the role of stillness in prayer. And uh, I'm not going to say what I just said, because that was already on the tape. But the idea is that we're coming to still and quiet our hearts so that we can rest, really rest in his arms. And you who are parents know the joy of having your child in your arms still and relaxed and resting. I don't think there's a greater joy in parenthood than having your baby in your arms, my nephew in my arms, and just holding him. Still remains the greatest experience of my life. And if we, being evil uncles, know how to love our nephews with that kind of passionate love, how much more does God love his children? So really, he longs And that's not an exaggeration. He longs to have you in his arms and to hold you. And of course the trouble is that we're squirming around trying to get out of his arms to prove that we deserve to be there. (laughs) Kind of pointless, isn't it? He just wants to hold us and to love us and have a relationship with us and we're trying to prove that we have a right to be there. And he's waiting for us to get over that so we can just be there. So that's the goal and... Coming in stillness, physical stillness and stillness of speech and stillness of thought and emotional stillness is the route to that place of simply abiding with him. That's why it's so important. So I'm going to presume that in your life that is happening, that you've found a way to establish a regular time of stillness with God in your own lives. Having accomplished that, what can you expect what are the outcomes? What, what, what's normal in the Christian life when you establish this kind of relationship, abiding prayer with the Lord? Well, there's, there's two um, outcomes. The first we'll call abiding rest. And it's characterized by an empty, peaceful stillness, a strong sense of God's fatherly love, a strong sense of His presence, or even a gentle sense of his presence. But this whole experience I'm talking about is positive. He's present, and the experience is one of being satisfied, like a weaned child at its mother's breast, just like the psalm says. Well-fed, lying happy, and content. In uh, prayer literature, um, the early prayer literature, and even through uh, the Middle Ages, the prayer warriors called this state consolation. You're being consoled by God. It's a consolation and it's a consoling experience. And this is the goal of what we're doing. and This is why we do it. And everyone has in their heart, this is what I want to receive from God. And this is what we're expecting and hopefully this is what we're going to receive. It's the carrot in front of the horse. It's the motivation, it's what we're looking to get out of this. And eventually it's achieved, if we're persistent in our approach of God and our disciplines of learning to be still and resting in His presence, that is going to happen. And it, it's a promise. It's going to happen. He wants it to happen, it will happen. And usually it happens for you know, it begins to happen, and it gets better and better and better, and you can't believe how good it is. And you think that you've come into a whole new way of being with God. And in fact, you have. And when it happened to me, I thought a whole bunch of things. I thought, um, wow, I'm really holy. I am really holy. Mother Teresa should be calling me for advice. I'm not kidding. It was so powerful. I mean, it was just like I really thought I had arrived. And I foolishly believed that um, I had changed that I was somehow a much better person, much more spiritual, much more in tune with God. I thought that it was sort of like um, you get to know God, and God changes you as you go, and then those changes are permanent. I don't know if I said this to you, but it was a r- very rude awakening. I was about a year and a half, a couple of years into this prayer process, and it was really fruitful and really wonderful, And I went sailing with my sister and her husband and my brother and his wife. A 30-foot sailboat for a week with six people. And the first day, I didn't have time to pray. And, oh, and by the way, all my family and all of my friends had seen the difference in me. And it was shocking to them. They just, they thought it was wonderful, but they, they just couldn't believe it. It's like, what has happened to him? Filthy beast blood-sucking, wallet-extracting, ruthless lawyer turns into this little Catholic nun in a space of a year. So, uh, first day, don't pray on the boat. Second day, don't pray in the boat. Third day, don't pray in the boat. My sister comes to me, middle of the third day, and says, what's happened to you? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you're not the person that you were when you stepped on this boat three days ago. I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "Well, um, you're short-tempered, and you're selfish, and you're rude, and um, you, you don't have the peace that you had when you got on the boat. You're just really changing fast." And I thought, "Oh, I haven't I haven't prayed for three or four days." And um, she's right. What I discovered was you're only as holy as you're close to God. Radical thought, huh? (laughs) I always thought, this is to my credit. I will be able to keep this forever. I am so much better now. I can be independent of God. I can be holy and be independent of God. I don't really... Look how he's changed me. Thank you for changing me, Lord. Love you. You're great. Wonderful. I'll take it from here. Right? And I found out If you don't, go collect the manna daily. What you had rots. And you find maggots in it the next day. You're not living as a transformed person. You're being transformed while you're with him. His influence upon you is changing you. Your holiness isn't your holiness. Your holiness is him. As long as you're close to him. Are you with me? That's a good thing to discover. That's a good, good thing to discover. So, I went through this like incredible time of consolation and the richness of God and everything and had this crazy notion that I'd arrived and I hadn't. Then you carry, you carry it on and then all of a sudden, one day, it doesn't work anymore. Just like that. It just doesn't work anymore. He's not present like he was yesterday. I've just gone through months of him being incredibly present every single day, like clockwork, and it's not happening today. And I thought, I must have sinned. So I go back and I look over every detail of my life in the three minutes since I got up. Because he was here yesterday, we were great yesterday, I go over all of yesterday. No major sins, I mean the usual, but... He never he never abandoned me for that for the last six months. No major sin. What did I do wrong? Oh, that's it. I didn't sit properly. That's it. I didn't do the technique. Oh, praise the Lord. Okay, I'll just do my exercises again and I'll still incline my heart and he'll be here any minute, any second. Now, here he comes. Nothing. My God, the technique didn't work. And so I begin repenting again. I go for deeper sins. There's got to be a deeper sin somewhere that accounts for him not being present today. And there isn't. And then, you know, you blame yourself, you blame something, and then you blame him. Well, you don't love me anymore. I I don't know what I've done, but you've just turned off the tap. And when you go into that turn off the tap phase, that's when almost everybody quits praying. They say, quote, it isn't working anymore. It was really good for a while, but it's not working anymore. So I should just quit. And most people stop then, and that's the end of their prayer life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because what other answer is there? It was wonderful. I experienced it all. It was great. But that must have just been a phase. Something's wrong. I don't know what it is. No point in doing this anymore. And unless you have... Someone on your case who will say, no, you need to keep going. Why should I keep going? Because this, whatever this is, has a purpose in your life. And God may be present by his absence. You ever heard the phrase he was conspicuously absent? You never heard that? Someone was supposed to be at a meeting, and he wasn't at the meeting, and someone says, well, he was conspicuously absent. He was supposed to be there, but he was absent. But his very absence said something. His absence spoke. And sometimes people are more influential in a meeting when they're not there than when they're there. Because they're not there says something. Right? Okay, so... Take this on good authority. The um, writers that write about this, what they call the interior life, this relationship with God, this abiding prayer, they will all tell you that going into a period of God's conspicuous absence is not abnormal. It doesn't mean that you have sinned. And it is actually intentional by God. He is doing this by design. It's him. He is intentionally not saying anything. He's intentionally withholding the tangible sense of his presence. And the writers call it desolation. There's consolation and there's desolation. And desolation looks like the desert. Desolation looks very much like Jesus in the desert. Alone, hot, dry and no food and no feedback just out there do you understand? now let's just stop and think about this for a minute if God is doing this if he's intentionally withholding himself from you what good reason could he have for doing that? What does he hope to achieve? Yes. When he withholds himself, it actually, he is so conspicuous by his absence, we find ourselves longing for him more. And it is called unsatisfied longing. And the biblical word, and there is a word in the Old Testament, that captures, absolutely captures what we're talking about. It's the word to wait. If you do a word study, it's fant- it's so interesting. If you do a word study on the word wait, um, I will wait before him. Um, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of them in a moment. You will find that that word translates in a number of ways, but the sum total of those words would be wrapped up in the phrase unsatisfied longing. That he actually intends from time to time, to deepen our spiritual hunger for himself by withholding himself, to build up an unsatisfied longing. You know, if you had nothing but consolation and prayer in about six to eight months, you'd completely take him for granted. Mm -hmm. Just like I was. Hey, I'm holy. This is automatic. I got a thing going with God you can't touch. This is awesome. I have arrived. And there's nothing like having it taken away, to all of a sudden realize I haven't arrived, I'm still dependent, and it's not in my control, and I really want you, Lord. And I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to keep on, I am going to keep on coming back and meeting with you for this hour a day, for the rest of my life, no matter what you do or don't do. I will be here waiting. that accomplishes something inside of you that no other experience can accomplish. It builds a tenacity. It builds a discipline. It builds a perseverance. It accentuates your hunger and your desire. When he reveals himself, he is far more precious to you the second time than he was the first time. Right? So let's look at some of the words um, for unsatisfied longing. Let me give you some of the words that describe the experience of his absence lonely, empty barren, dry full of desire and longing and sometimes this longing drives us to prayer even more and we enter into stillness and the longing gets worse we feel frustration disillusionment, even anger and this is the point that a lot of people say this isn't working and they quit This prayer is too frustrating. This can't be God. God can't want me to experience this. I better try it again another time or I'll try something else. Isaiah 30, verse 15 says this. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest. Now this is interesting, guys. In repentance and rest. The Hebrew word rest there is one of the words for stillness. Yet in other places, is translated be still. It means motionlessness. So it could read like this. In repentance and motionlessness, or inner peace, is your salvation. In quietness, and the word quietness there translates silence, inactive, undisturbed rest and trust. Cool, huh? I have stilled and quieted my soul within me. In silent, inactive, undisturbed rest and trust is your strength. But the Lord says, but you would have none of it. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Now listen. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, blessed or fortunate or favored. How lucky are you who wait on the Lord. Who wait on the Lord. How lucky are you who wait on the Lord? Now, here is the exact Hebrew transliteration of the word to wait. Blessed are you who wait on the Lord. It's the word kaka, and it comes from the verb to pierce in order to fasten one thing to another. They would take two pieces of leather and they would take a big awl. And a metal thong. And they would take this big awl and they would drive it through the two pieces of metal and pull it through and then take it and tie it and it's sewing in essence. So the root of this, this word to wait on the Lord is to be pierced in order to be fastened to. Isn't that interesting? Your emptiness, your desolation, your dryness is being pierced, it hurts. It's painful, but in it will come a greater attachment, a bonding to. And that's the very root of the word to wait. It means to pierce in order to fasten one thing to another. Now listen to this, it also translates to adhere to, to stick to, to long for, to tarry and wait in longing. Isn't that cool? So what he's describing here is that he'll lead you into an experience where his absence is so hard and so acute that your spiritual hunger just causes you to reach out and cling to him and adhere to him in a way that is that is piercing on one level but far deeper than any degree of attachment you would have if life was perfectly rosy and you were experiencing his consolation constantly. If you're going to go deeper, it's because you've gone beyond the easy things and you're into the places where there's a degree of of desperate longing within you. And as that gets stronger, your hunger for Him gets stronger, and you become more adhered and more stuck and more clinging to Him and more attached to Him, which deepens your whole relationship. You guys, it's like marriage. Infatuation is the consolation stage. This guy can do no wrong. This girl is perfect. Now let's be honest. How long does that last? Please tell me that in your relationships there was some moment of disillusionment. Please, come on. This guy is a pig and I didn't know he did this and I didn't know he did this and I had no idea he did that. I can't believe it. This is not the person that I married. The person that you married was an illusion you had in your mind that got you married. Now you're stuck with the real person. And we have to work this out. We'll do our best to work this out. And then it goes deeper. And love goes from being a consolation experience to a matter of choice. Now I have a choice to make. Now I have to apply myself. Now we have to work things out, and that's much harder. But when you get through the working things out, what you end up with is a relationship which is so faithful and so forever and so worthwhile, it was totally worth all the garbage that it took to get to that kind of relationship. Right? I'm going to say, I'm speaking for myself and Shelley. It was worth it. And there's lots of that to go through to get to that place. Okay, let's look at a few more of the words for wait: To fasten by piercing, to adhere, to stick to, to long for, to tarry and wait in longing. Unfulfilled longing. And God's saying that you're favored and fortunate and blessed if you have this holy dissatisfaction. Isaiah 64 I love this verse. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies, cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, nobody has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. The Hebrew word used for wait is the same one used for longing that we just talked about. Listen, here's a spiritual principle you get as much of God as you hunger for. Period. You will experience as much of God as you hunger for. And His goal is to increase your hunger because He wants to give you more of Him. I mean, isn't it just interesting? God acts on behalf of those who long for Him. And this longing is. God-given and it both fuels and comes out of our prayer. It's like a snowball. it, It feeds on itself. You come to God and he gives you some of himself. That makes you want him more. You get complacent with what you're experiencing because you think it's automatic and you've arrived. Then he withdraws a little bit. All of a sudden your hunger increases so then he comes again then you're thankful and it grows a little stronger and then you get complacent again. Guys, if you don't think you get complacent, just read the Old Testament, okay? Israel is an exercise in complacency. And if you want to get smug and say, well, they're just a bunch of stupid Jews, just remember this, he just picked them because they're perfect representations of human nature. And we get complacent and we lose our hunger and we do the same unfaithful crap that they did. That's human nature. He has to take us through that and get us so attached to Him that we're going to stay that way till heaven. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's what He's doing with unsatisfied longing. In the morning, O Lord, Psalm 5, In the morning, O Lord, You hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before You and I wait in expectation. And that same one is waiting with longing. But here's the difference. Now, the writer is adding expectation. Look, there's two kinds of waiting. There's unsatisfied longing that leads to cynicism. Nothing's going to happen. This is pointless. I don't even know why I'm doing this. I'll oh, just forget about it. That's not godly waiting. Waiting with expectation that he's going to come. And expectation that you're going to see him again. That's godly waiting. It's a longing and a spiritual hunger, but it's not a despair. Bearing spiritual hunger. It's an expectant spiritual hunger. He's going to come again. And the temptation when you're in a time of desolation is to despair and losing your faith. And God wants you to get through that where you wait in expectation. And you read the Psalms, they're full of expectation. David is in the worst possible situation. You know, he'll do like 14 lines of my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth, my bones rot within me, lions are ready to tear me apart, everyone hates me, my best friend is my worst enemy, where are you God, I wish I was dead. And he just pours it all out and tells the whole truth about his emotions and then at the second last line he goes, but God, but God is faithful and God will come to me again and I lift up my soul and I say to my soul, arise, Soul, why are you downcast? His faith is speaking to his emotions. And and yet I will wait on the Lord, and he will come, and he will break through for me. Do you see the point? It's longing, and it's unsatisfied longing, but it's with an expectation that he's going to come. And that's building faith within you, and that's why he's doing it, and that causes you to both believe in him and cling to him even more tenaciously. One thing I ask of the Lord, Psalm 27, and this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. My heart says of you, seek His face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. I am still confident. Now listen, I am still confident of this. And this is after hard times. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. You see the role of waiting? Now that word there, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord, in Psalm 27 is the Greek word, uh, for weight but it's different than the one to be pierced together now this is really interesting the cool thing about the Hebrew language is that it's extremely concrete I think I told you this before but their language is not theoretical uh, it's, it's not um, it's very very uh, attached to the physical world and to what's going on in their lives like the word for, the Hebrew word for despair or depression is his jaw fell. Everything is a picture, like longing is to wait, is to pierce through in order to attach. To be still is to take the pressure off a rope. You see how all of these things come out of physical experiences? It all exists on two levels, it's very pictorial, it's, very, it's easy to imagine, it's easy to see but it has an emotional impact and an emotional meaning, but it comes out of everyday life. It's a really cool language. Okay, this one is really neat. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, wait for the Lord in Psalm 27. This is the Hebrew word, not kaka, but kavah, and it means this, to bind together by twisting. And here's the imagery. It's the word you would use, you have two pieces of rope, with many strands and you fray both ends till you have frayed ends about this long and you take these ends and you braid them together to where the the fibers of each rope are so intertwined and so twisted and braided together that by the time you finish you cannot separate that rope. What was two is now one. They're all interwound in each other. These strands, so that now they can't be separated. You've twisted and intertwined in order to join. That's what's happening to you when you wait for the Lord. The fibers of your soul and of your spirit and of your mind are being intertwined with Him in longing, to where when the process is finished, you too are so integrated, you cannot be separated. That's why when you were a young Christian, it seemed that when God spoke to you, it was incredibly clear. It was really easy to understand His voice, to pick it out. But now, after years of being a Christian, it's very hard to tell the difference between His thoughts and your thoughts. And we find it frustrating, but it's wonderful. Because what it means is, His mind is being so integrated with my mind and your mind, that sometimes we don't know who's thinking. And it's a wonderful thing, because it allows him to direct us and give us guidance in our own voice, which never violates our free will, always leaves us with incredible dignity, and yet he's influencing and he's... His thoughts are weaving into our thoughts and our thoughts are weaving into his thoughts and our emotions get mixed up together. And we become so intertwined, these two pieces of rope, that eventually you can't tell the difference. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just the best thing in the world? That is what waiting accomplishes. Because you're hungering for him and in that hunger he's insinuating himself right into the fabric of your very thoughts. And have your emotions. And your spirits are getting all mixed up together. Isn't that cool? And that's part of the prayer process. That's really the outcome of abiding prayer. Is that intimacy is so close, you're growing into him and he's growing into you. And pretty soon there's no, no point in trying to separate the two because you can't. Because you're in some kind of union together. Isn't that just the coolest thing? And this is a longing not without hope. Expectation is absolutely key. This passage is suggesting a longing, expectant, gazing at Jesus, waiting for him to reveal himself. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I wish to dwell in the house of the Lord all of my days and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Remember the teaching I did on Beholding Brings Becoming? That's in another one of these. But that's an example of what we're talking about. The more you look at Him, the more your gaze is caught up in Him, you are actually being transformed by what you're looking at. You are changing by looking at Him. Not, not because you're trying to change yourself in some sort of a self-righteous kind of holiness, you are being changed by what you're gazing at. Where your focus is, is what you become. When your focus is Him, He is influencing and changing you from glory to glory. It's that Corinthians passage I taught out of. From glory to glory to glory. As we behold and gaze at Him, we're being transformed by Him. And that's part of this longing, this gazing process that this verse is talking about. Here's a famous one. We really love this. Everybody quotes this. Psalm 37.4 Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Right? Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. But go on and read the rest of the verse. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Interesting, huh? Like we always take delight yourself in the Lord as like have a worshipful experience. Get into worship. Sing a little louder. Put your hands in the air. All of which is fine. But that's not delighting yourself in the Lord. Delighting yourself in the Lord... It is, but that's pretty shallow. Delighting yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Gets a lot closer to what's really going on, doesn't it? That's a lot deeper than just lift your hands in worship. The word wait here, in this passage, means hope, rest, stay, tarry, travail, tremble, trust, wait patiently, exercise care. Let me read those again. These are the ways this one word gets translated. In Psalm 37, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Translates this. Hope, that's the expectation. Rest, that's the tarrying, the stillness. Stay, tarrying and stillness. Tarry, cling to, adhere to, travail, Grab hold of and don't let go in expectation. Tremble and trust. That's your expectation. Wait carefully and patiently. Now we can see how stillness and hopeful, patient longing go together. That's a part of the prayer process. So when it gets empty, it's not empty. I just want to repeat this. This is not despairing without hope. Despair is the temptation. But we're counting on Him to come through. We're in expectation that He's going to do something. Do see you guys have both phases of prayer, consolation and desolation, they both carry their own temptations. What's the temptation when you're in consolation? When everything's great, Complacency, what else? Spiritual pride. That was me in spades. Taking him for granted. It's automatic. I've arrived, this is great. Easy. Okay, so what's the temptation when you're in desolation? To To give up. And to lose your faith. Now, we'd never lose our faith. We wouldn't say, I'm not a Christian anymore. We'd just live like we weren't a Christian anymore. We'd just say, this whole God thing isn't working very well. I'll still keep going to church. You know, I like the Christian values and stuff. I'll put on a happy face. I'll pretend, but in my heart, I'm really giving up. So, both aspects have temptations. We just have to recognize that. Let me read you one more and then we're done and we can go on to the next section. This is Lamentations three twenty two plus of the Lord's great love we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself The Lord is my portion. My life comes from him. Therefore I will wait. I will be bound together with him and expect and patiently tarry for his presence. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the ones who come and bind themselves to God and wait. To the one who seeks him, he is good. Now listen, it is good to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. He's saying unsatisfied longing and waiting is a good thing. Now listen to this. It is good for a person, man or woman, to bear the yoke of prayer while he is young. Learn to wait while you're young. Bear that burden of prayer. It is worth it. It pays huge dividends. Let <laughs> This is so good. It's like he's preaching my whole message. Let him sit alone in silence for the lord has laid it on him be still and know that i am god let him wait alone in silence for the lord for the lord has laid it on him isn't that like it just that that one passage captures so much of the spirit of this prayer The yoke is silent, quiet, waiting, longing, hopeful, expectant, trusting prayer. Okay, persistence in prayer takes us to one of two places. To a quiet, satisfied rest, or to a quiet, dissatisfied longing. Both of these are from God, so they are both good, but only one is pleasant. And we tend to run our Christian lives according to what is pleasant. Neglecting what is not, and therefore missing a whole lot of growth. We will will experience these two places, consolation or desolation, according to his wisdom and his timing. Our job is to keep on coming and seek his face and to learn to wait. So, what this means is the dry times in prayer have meaning and purpose. You are not failing when they happen. You are growing in perseverance. You are growing in this discipline of waiting. You are becoming more deeply attached and connected to him. The fibers of his soul, his spirit, his personality, his mind are being interwoven with yours even as you wait. And if you can understand that, you can do it. And if you can do it, you will grow through it. And nobody will be able to take your prayer life away from you. No lie of the enemy will be able to dissuade you from your prayer life once you've gone through a couple of these cycles, and you'll know it. It's like what's really cool about these these old guys that write about prayer, the desert fathers and, and all the guys in the middle ages, they they did it for a living. they're cloistered. you know I mean, they just do the inner life. and what they all you read their writings and it's all the same. They might be three, four, five, six, seven hundred years apart, over a thousand years apart, not contemporaries in any way, writing their books and they're all talking about the same stuff. We're not going into uncharted territory. When you explore this life of prayer, there are hundreds of thousands of millions of people that have done it centuries before you and written about the experience. These cycles are predictable. You are not getting bushwhacked. You are not getting ambushed. This is just what it is to pursue God. So it's okay. They've given us roadmaps. They've said, yeah, this is going to happen to you. Don't freak out. Just keep coming to Him. This has a purpose. Don't lose heart. Don't get proud. Don't get despairing. Just keep coming to Him. Isn't that kind of reassuring? That there's this roadmap in front. GPS for the soul, soul positioning system, <laughs> spiritual positioning system. Okay, any questions before we go on to the next section, or or comments or whatever? There. Okay.
1: it's meaningful very meaningful because it's like it's like a cycle I see it like a cycle and so many times I've talked to intercessors who say that they they consistently hear a voice
0: just uh, start it off if you want just to make this point Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not dissing intercessory prayer. It's one of the ways God gets things done in the world. In fact, it might be almost the only way he gets things done in the world. So it's really important. But, you know, we talked about this, that Jesus had an opportunity to define eternal life. And he didn't define it as a place. He didn't say oh, he let you just you know guys gold on the roads diamonds on the walls i mean whoa he said this is eternal life that you will know god and you'll know me he defined eternal life as a relationship everything we do has to come out of a relationship what doesn't come out of a relationship isn't good jesus said you can do many things but you can't do anything good apart from me you've got to abide in me so, other forms of prayer, like I'm not saying don't intercede or don't have petitionary prayers where you're just coming to Him asking Him to help you. He told us to do that. But there's a, there's a form of prayer which is far deeper and more important. It's the foundation of every other prayer. You can't pray an intercessory prayer with much faith if you don't know the person you're asking. If you don't have confidence in Him because you have experience of Him, why should you believe that you're going to receive anything? Right, So all we're doing is trying to get down to the most important form of prayer. This is foundational because it's relational. Everything else flows from this prayer. If you get this prayer right, all your other prayers will have way more direction and power and authority and faith. So we're just focusing on the basics here. The deepest kind of prayer that we can have. And then everything else, everything else in our life springs from that place okay all right we're going to go on to the use of imagination in prayer which is a complete gear shift